Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Raed Wake, Chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. This podcast is intended for healthcare providers and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I would be interviewing experts about timeless and timely topics in the areas of pulmonary, critical care, allergy, sleep, and infectious disease. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Respiratory Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Dwight Dwake, Chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. And my guest today is Dr. David Lang, who is the Chairman of Allergy and Immunology at the Cleveland Clinic. We will be discussing vaccine and drug allergies today. David, welcome. Thank you, Ray. Great to be here. So let's start with the basics, David. Like, what yeah. are the? Uh, start with medications first. You know, we hear about I'm allergic to penicillin, I'm allergic to aspirin, all that. So, first, how common is that, and mm-hmm. what drugs are the most commonly associated with allergies? Thanks, Ray. That's a that's a great question for starters. So, if you could look into the, uh, or if we together could look into the electronic medical record here at the Cleveland Clinic and look into the allergy field, what we would find is that the the two most common medications to which people self-report allergy are antibiotics and analgesics. And among the antibiotics, penicillin is number one. A history of penicillin allergy is claimed by about 10% of the population. And curiously, when those patients come to see us on referral, what we find is that uh, at least 95% are going to be negative on skin testing, and they tolerate amoxicillin challenge without a reaction, and we're able to remove the label of penicillin allergy. It's, you know, this is very curious that that such a huge proportion of these Mm -hmm. patients are actually needlessly avoiding penicillin. This has become a major uh, initiative in our specialty of allergy immunology to, as we say, delabel these patients. And this is a phenomenon that is not as well understood uh, in terms of why the rate of positive skin testing to penicillin in patients whom we see in allergy immunology is declining. In the mid-70s and in the 80s, the rate was about 15% uh, reported in, in large series of patients who had positive skin test to penicillin. In our series reported about 14 years ago in the allergy immunology literature from Cleveland Clinic, it was 8%. But more recently, um, most uh, centers report a rate uh, less than 5%, and in some centers, it's more like 2 or 3%. Wow. So these are, uh, so is something happening over time? Is, that decl- is the sensitivity declining thing, the allergy, or just the way we are looking at it? Well, there are three reasons why the rate of skin test positivity is so low. The first is that the previous reaction wasn't a true allergic or IgE-mediated reaction, and it was either based on a viral exanthem or an immunologic reaction with a different mechanism, such as a T-cell-mediated event. And uh, to make a really long story as short as I can, I'll describe this as the kind of reaction that's not associated with immunologic memory. So it was a bona fide reaction. It was causal. It was immunologic. But it won't recur with re-exposure to penicillin. The second reason is that the prior reaction actually was an IgE-mediated or true allergic event. But with the passage of time and avoidance of penicillin-type drugs, the potential for reaction with re-exposure wanes, and penicillin can be taken again without a reaction. The third reason, which turns out to be 
the biggest uh, chunk of the pie figure, if you will. The third reason is that it's a coincidence or a side effect that's misattributed to allergy. Somebody had an upset stomach, a bad headache. I can provide you with a long list, including a parent or a sibling who's allergic to penicillin. Actually, you know, this turns out to be the most frequently encountered category. And at many centers, a more recent development in the management of patients with self-reported penicillin allergy is that when we take a detailed history and it's in this category of being associated with what I will refer to as a low pretest probability, we don't even do the skin testing. We just go ahead and do a direct challenge. Wow. So it's kind of obvious even from the history. So you mentioned a couple of things, the IgE-mediated and the cell-mediated immunity. Do you want to maybe just for our audience to kind of talk about those in the context of drug allergy. Sure. So there are quite a few uh, categories of adverse immunologic reactions that may occur to drugs. And one of those, if you think of the, the classic, if you will, Jalcoom's classification of drug allergy, type 1 or immediate hypersensitivity would be an IgE-mediated reaction. This is the kind of mechanism that we test for when we carry out immediate hypersensitivity skin testing. There are a number of adverse reactions for which we, we can't skin test, or, or I should say the skin testing will not be associated with value because it doesn't predict the potential for, for instance, a serum sickness reaction or another type of adverse reaction that, that's non-IG mediated. We talk about IgE-mediated reaction, kind of symptoms and signs of that. Is that when they get like shock or... Uh, so an IgE-mediated reaction yeah. would be the occurrence of symptoms such as pruritus, urticaria, angioedema, sensation of throat closing, difficulty breathing. Yeah, it can result in anaphylaxis, but, but other uh, more common or milder manifestations of this would be urticaria, angioedema, or pruritus. So these are the serious you know, consequences of drug allergies. This is what we'll be looking for, and that's what we'll be testing for in skin testing. That, that's that's correct. So it's an IgE-mediated. The unfortunate reality is that there aren't many drugs for which there are validated reagents for skin testing. So, for instance, patients who present with self-reported sulfa allergy, there's no skin test we can do. Although it's an IgE-mediated event, it turns out that with sulfamethoxazole, the IgE is generally produced to a metabolite of the drug, and th that metabolite is unstable. So we could do a skin test to sulfamethoxazole, but it, it wouldn't have clinical relevance. Yeah, well, that's more complicated than I thought. I thought you could test for anything, I guess. <laughs> yeah, most, medicine, actually, most, many, so many, many patients and referring physicians also yeah. uh, think that we, you know, just do a skin test. But it turns out that it, it, it may not be valid. And, and it's actually the minority of drugs for which we have valid reagents for skin testing, for which we have adequate negative predictive value, which is, you, which is as, as everyone knows, is the ability of the test to be negative when, when the allergy is not present. Yeah. Uh, so even if the test, even if the skin test is negative and with many drugs, it wouldn't rule out the potential for, for IgE-mediated allergic anaphylactic reaction because it, it, it hasn't been validated. Yeah, that's a very important uh, thing to know. So I may still focus, I know we can talk to maybe treatment next of how you mm -hmm. sensitize, but yeah. let's focus on diagnosis first uh, sure. a little bit more. So uh, what are some of the common drugs that you know have people have reactions to, but really there's no way to test for them, for example? At, yeah. So another one would be aspirin. And let me just let me just back up and say a couple things regarding penicillin. 
because, you know, we have entered an era in which uh, there is a major initiative concerning antibiotic stewardship. And getting back to what I said concerning the initiative and our specialty, uh, you know, there is, there is now very good evidence that the label of penicillin allergy is uh, associated with untoward healthcare outcomes. That when patients with penicillin allergy avoid penicillin-type drugs, they tend to be treated with broad-spectrum alternative antibiotics that are associated with increased risk for adverse effects, breeding drug-resistant organisms, higher costs, and greater rates of C. diff, MRSA, and VRE. Uh, So there are a number of studies now demonstrating that if patients are, again, delabeled, if you will, and we remove that label of penicillin allergy, that this is associated with improved healthcare outcomes over time. And I would add that the skin testing procedure that we carry out can be done safely even in young children, pregnant women, critically ill patients, and pre-organ transplant recipients. So there is an initiative within the field of allergy immunology. In fact, the American Academy of Allergy and Immunology issued a position statement indicating that penicillin allergy testing should be performed routinely in patients with self-reported penicillin allergy. It used to be the case 15 years ago that we would see patients referred for another reason, for asthma, for uh, chronic sinusitis, and we would pick up on uh, in doing what I would refer to as a collateral allergic history that they'd had a reaction to penicillin in the past. And we would just say, well, this is not the reason that you're here. So based on your history, continue to avoid penicillin and penicillin-like drugs. If there's a time that comes up in the future where you need penicillin, there's no equally effective alternative, then we can do skin testing. But now, even though that's not the major reason they come to see us, we say, you know, you're not here for this reason, but it would be in your best healthcare interest to go ahead and, and do the skin testing because there's a high likelihood, 19 out of 20, that we're going to be able to delabel you and I can take penicillin out of, your, uh, out of the allergy field in Epic. How do patients feel about that when that happens? Are they happy? Are they upset? Are most they... patients, when I, when I present it in this fashion, most patients will say, yeah, yeah, I understand. I'd like to do that. You know, we always follow, although the penicillin skin test is validated, as I said earlier, we always follow this with a challenge procedure. So they they tolerate 250 milligrams of amoxicillin before they head out the door. And and over 30 years of doing this, I've only seen two people have a reaction after the skin testing was negative. It's not commonly encountered. But the major value of doing the challenge is that they leave with peace of mind knowing that they've tolerated amoxicillin and they're no longer penicillin allergic. If I just stop at the end of the skin testing, then they're going to get a prescription for, you know, for amoxicillin or augmentin, you know, six months or a year later, and they're going to say, boy, you know, can I take this? Am I going to react? So they leave with peace of mind, which is one of the major reasons we do the challenge procedure. Yeah. So let's back up a little bit. Let's say somebody refers a patient to you who has history of uh, penicillin allergy. Mm-hmm. So what's what do we expect to do? It looks like you do history, of course. It looks like it's we like take a, a history, history and then we do skin and testing. It's in two rounds. Yeah. Round one is at uh, prick level. We put a drops. Of, we put we put penicillin G and uh, pre-pen, which is penicillin polylysine, that's the major determinant. When we take penicillin, 95% of the penicillin is metabolized in the liver to this, what's called a major determinant. And 15 minutes, we put a drop on the skin and scratch through that drop so that the liquid gets underneath the topmost layer of skin. Uh, we also use a saline a negative control and a solution of histamine as a positive control to validate the test. 
and then we go ahead to intradermal level skin testing. After that round is negative, little injection under the skin, another 15 minute round, if that's negative, we go ahead to the oral challenge. Yeah, that's great to understand the stepwise yeah. approach uh, to doing this. So this way you are confident, uh, the mm -hmm. patient is confident and their physician mm -hmm. is confident. And mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to come back to uh, the fact that really the healthcare of uh, these individuals is really affected. And that's really pretty striking. That's the fact that you have penicillin allergy. And I can see that maybe because maybe your antibiotic regimens are not always, you know, they're always missing a major penicillins are uh, mm -hmm. a major uh, antibiotic that we use. Is that the main reason you think, or are there are other reasons that thought that the fact that once somebody is labeled with allergy to penicillin or another drug affects their healthcare outcome, or is the main thing is that they just don't get the right antibiotics or they have to get antibiotics? seems to be that they don't get the right antibiotics. The nature of the studies that have been done comparing patients with the penicillin allergy label with uh, these studies have been done at a number of centers now where, for instance, in one study, they looked at patients with penicillin allergy who had been seen in allergy and immunology and had been delabeled and compared them with patients who had the label of penicillin allergy who had not been referred. And that's one of the studies that, that demonstrated the untoward outcomes for those who continued to have that label. As a result of receiving alternative antibiotics that, you know, again, are more likely to, to breed resistant organisms, cause untoward effects, and are associated with longer length of stay and greater costs. So it looks like the major work in an allergy. And, 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 in term, and yeah. I just want to, in terms of the antibiotic stewardship yeah. initiative, which we're all aware of, uh, this is low-hanging fruit Yeah. in terms yes. of penicillin allergy delabeling. So it looks like you said, uh, did I remember correctly, 95% of patients end up not having allergy, even though they were told they had it at some point. In self-reported penicillin so, allergy, that's correct. But we really, you know, you really need to take a have, history, yeah. uh, have the patient seen by a board-certified allergist rather than going ahead and prescribing penicillin to these patients. Because yeah. uh, there is, if you do it enough times, you know, there is a significant minority group where, you know, they're going to have reactions and they can be serious. Yeah, before moving to that minority group, another question I had yeah. is some people like, interestingly, they'd be labeled they have penicillin allergy, but they have taken, you know, amoxicillin and stuff. And right. that's like an that's obvious mistake, correct? You know, if they've that's recently taken it. Those are the kinds of people we just go ahead and challenge them rather challenge than doing right skin testing. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So now let's focus on the 5% that truly have uh, allergy yes. to a drug. Uh, let's say maybe aspirin. Um, right. So let me just say one other thing. In uh, those individuals in whom we, um, they have an appropriate history and the skin tests are positive, that implies that they're at increased risk compared to the general population for having allergic anaphylactic reaction with penicillin re-exposure and they need to continue to avoid penicillin. However, there are situations, for instance, if somebody is admitted to the ICU with pneumococcal meningitis and they clearly need penicillin and that's the, or a patient who has enterococcal endocarditis. Uh, there are situations where the patient definitely needs penicillin or a penicillin-type drug. There's no equally efficacious alternative. We can carry out a drug desensitization procedure where we give penicillin uh, beginning a few molecules at a time. And, so tell uh, us more about this. Uh, what every, does it involve? Every 15 minutes, uh, we, we double the dose. We try to do it orally if we can because the reaction rate is less if it's oral. If we have to, we do it parenterally. And there is a high rate reported in several studies, up to a third of patients who have some adverse reaction is generally paritis or urticaria. But, I th you know, sometimes I think that's because 
people like me are walking in and out of the room every few minutes looking at the patient and saying, uh, are you doing okay? Are you itchy? Are you having anything wrong? So ultimately, we persuade enough people that, you know, <laughs> that they're itchy uh, yeah. that we give them an antihistamine. But r- there are, uh, the rate of serious reaction during a desensitization procedure, it's about a, a six to eight hour protocol generally to get up from the few molecules at a time up to a full therapeutic dose. And they tolerate the penicillin-type drug as long as we're giving it to them. We have to give it to them continually. After we stop giving it to them, after 48 hours, again, they have their anaphylactic potential return, so they need to continue avoiding it. Oh, yeah, so it's not that one and done. It's not, this it's is not, for every it's not of permanent. Care. It's just transient. Yeah. So getting back to aspirin, aspirin is an example of a medication to which we can't skin test because the reaction is unrelated to true allergy. So there are individuals who see us, as you well know, based on your training, your training yeah, in yeah. pulmonary medicine, yeah. that we have patients with aspirin-exacerbated respiratory disease. Yeah, of course. This was originally described by an allergist in Chicago by the name of Max Samter, published a paper in the Annals of Internal Medicine in 1968, in which he put it all together, that there were three things that, that characterized this syndrome. In uh, the third or fourth decade of life, people generally develop a chronic rhinosinusitis with nasal polyps, frequently have required sinus surgery for that. Subsequent to that, asthma develops, may become the dominant component of the syndrome. And after number one and number two are present, patients have a respiratory reaction that can be serious with exposure to aspirin or aspirin-type drug. So these three things, this is how the eponym Samter's triad came about. And then in the... Um, in the late 70s at the University of Michigan, consecutive day challenges with aspirin and indomethacin. They found that when the patient had a reaction on day one, surprisingly, they could tolerate the drug challenge on day two without a reaction. The rate of cross-reaction with non-steroidal drugs, as you know, RAD, is 100% in the syndrome. So what they learned is that, that tolerance could be induced based on provoking a reaction. And that allowed patients who needed aspirin for another reason, for instance, cardiovascular disease, to have a tolerance induced or to be desensitized. Desensitization is an induction of tolerance. And they were able to take aspirin for the other indication, uh, such as cardiovascular disease. But then what was observed was that the respiratory condition improved with regular administration of aspirin to perpetuate the tolerant state. So this is now the major reason, Rayad, that we, we perform aspirin desensitization is as a therapeutic intervention for the condition. And the, the reaction, as you know, is based on inhibition of cyclooxygenase 1. Uh, these patients have a greater release of leukotrienes with exposure to aspirin, and they have greater end-organ sensitivity to leukotriene, so that's kind of the one-two punch that explains aspirin-provoked respiratory reaction. So again, this is not amenable to skin testing based on, you know, this on being, it's more related to biochemistry than allergy. We also see patients with aspirin allergy or with a label of aspirin allergy who've had cutaneous reactions to aspirin, and these patients break up into three groups. Group number one, 
is uh, patients with chronic urticaria. These uh, subgroups that I'm going to mention have all been renamed and rechristened. This group is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug exacerbated cutaneous disease, or NECD. These patients have chronic urticaria, and when they take aspirin, their urticaria worsens. This is kind of similar to the respiratory condition where there's an exaggerated release of leukotrienes with aspirin that provokes a respiratory reaction. There's evidence indicating that that there is also circulating leukotriene with aspirin exposure in patients with chronic urticaria. So in these patients, they also cross-react 100% with other non-steroidal drugs. We're not able to desensitize these patients generally. We're not able to induce tolerance because the condition continues to flare as the patients take aspirin. Another group of patients who come to see us with quote-unquote aspirin allergy, and many times these patients are older adults who need aspirin in association with, for instance, placement of a stent. These patients have no underlying chronic respiratory cutaneous condition. They have NIUA, which is non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug-induced urticaria angioedema. They have a history of urticaria or angioedema, which may be remote. And generally, we can perform challenge studies, and they can tolerate aspirin. There's no skin test that's, that's, that can be performed but generally based on history. In our center here, we generally, in patients with cardiovascular indications, we stop the challenge at a dose of 81 milligrams with the understanding there may be some dose response here in terms of the threshold for reaction. And in our experience, overwhelmingly, patients are able to tolerate aspirin and can take this uh, successfully for their cardiovascular condition. In situations where patients react at a low dose, we can continue administering aspirin and we can induce tolerance. That's not possible in the patients with chronic urticaria or NECD who I just mentioned. And there's a, another category which has uh, more initials. It's SNIUAA, which is a single drug non-steroidal induced urticaria angioedema or anaphylaxis. So occasionally we do see patients who have anaphylaxis from uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, and uh, they don't cross-react with other non-steroidals or with aspirin. And it, it may be possible to induce tolerance in such patients, but generally we do challenge studies with structurally unrelated non-steroidals or with aspirin, and they, they do fine. They just need to continue to avoid the non-steroidal that's associated with the reaction. A lot of long names. Long yeah, long names. So yeah. That, thank you for sharing all that with of us. Of course. Let me just try to uh, summarize maybe for our audience. Uh, individuals with pen like analgesics and um, antibiotics are the most common class of drugs to have allergies to. The penicillin uh, approach usually is confirm the diagnosis and try to delabel them, you know, either by history or by uh, skin mm -hmm. testing, and then desensitize as if really necessary. Mm -hmm. The aspirin approach is quite different because the diagnosis is clinical. There's no really skin testing, and the approach is either to desensitize to treat the underlying, you know, the airway-induced kind of respiratory uh, symptoms from aspirin, or for treatment for like something like cardiovascular underlying disease. So really. Mm -hmm kind of similar issues, but different approaches. So um, let's uh, pivot now from drugs and talk about vaccines. Uh, you know, uh, recently, especially with the pandemic, there's a lot of focus on vaccine allergic reactions, although we've always had allergic reaction to vaccines. Now with the talk of COVID, there's more interest in that. So can you tell us in general about 
uh, vaccine reactions and then uh, how COVID fits in that COVID uh, vaccines? Sure. Vaccines consist of antigens that elicit a desired immune response combined with adjuvants, which enhance the vaccine response and excipients. And generally, the allergic or IgE-mediated reaction to a vaccine is directed at an excipient. So, for instance, the MMR vaccine has gelatin as its excipient. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines have an excipient. It's polyethylene glycol. In the Janssen vaccine, it's polysorbate. Just to give you a bit of context, allergic reactions to the influenza vaccine is about at a, occur at a rate of about 1.3 per million. And a parenthetically, egg allergy is not a contraindication to the influenza to getting the influenza vaccine. So the rate of allergic reaction to the COVID vaccines is actually uh, actually it's actually quite rare. It's about 2.5 per million for the Pfizer vaccine and 11 per million for the Moderna vaccine. In our experience, patients who've had mild self-limited symptoms, including large local reactions, itching, hives, swelling, can receive subsequent vaccines, COVID vaccines, with similar reactions or less severe or no adverse reaction. We do have a skin test protocol here to um, polyethylene glycol and polysorbate that we use and uh, do a challenge dose of polyethylene glycol. And in our experience, the overwhelming majority of people who come to us with concern regarding the possibility of the risk of allergic reaction can accomplish this evaluation and then receive the vaccine successfully. That's uh, really good to know because these vaccines are very effective and helping and fight the pandemic. So uh, if somebody feels or thinks they are allergic to the vaccine, the best thing to do is maybe set an appointment with an allergist so they can be tested for the whatever incipient is in, the, the, in that vaccine, correct? Yes. That's the best way to do it. All right. So really, this has been great, David. I think we went through... Uh, a lot of information about drug and uh, uh, vaccine allergies. I want to try to maybe summarize to our audience here is that if you have a history of allergy to penicillin, maybe you are not, I guess. Maybe that's the main takeaway message, that 95% of people or like 19 out of 20 do not really have a true allergy. So make sure to check that out by visiting or making an appointment with your allergist because that actually has major implications for, for health outcomes. Aspirin is a bit different. You can have you know, airway disease associated with aspirin. There's no skin test for it, but you can be treated also. You can be desensitized. So I guess there are, the word for penicillin is delabeled. They are no longer allergic to penicillin. The word for, you can desensitize as well, but for aspirin, the main thing you try to do is desensitize so that they're no longer sensitive to aspirin. When it comes to vaccines, uh, allergic reactions are very rare but they also can be tested for if somebody wants uh, peace of mind. Anything else you'd like to add uh, to these uh, takeaway points? It's been a pleasure to be here with you. Yeah, thank you, David. And thank you, everybody, for uh, listening to our podcast today. Again, uh, I'm your host, Rai Dwake, chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic, and my guest today was the chairman of Allergy and Immunology at the Cleveland Clinic, Dr. David Lang. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Exchange. For more stories and information from Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow us on Twitter at Clee Clinic Lungs or follow me at Triad Wake MD. Thank you. <laughs>